namo tassa bhagavato harahato sambhasambodhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sambhasambodhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sambhasambodhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Many thanks for your questions. There are only so many topics that you can talk about, probably a dozen or more. And um, what a question does is it sort of makes you look at uh, a particular topic from a slightly different angle. So it allows a bit of creativity rather than coming out of my usual. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm not going to answer these in order because they, they work best if I jumble them around a bit. Uh, just the first one is concerning um, the, uh, you know, the experience that we have during the day. So the question is, I've noticed over the past three or four days that the same sits each day have the same quality of energy. So first thing in the morning is good, and late afternoon, early afternoon, the energy is low, and late afternoon and evening, it's good again. Is it possible that we have a distinct rhythm of energy, like a daily pattern? Yeah, I think most people experience that. Most people have a... <clears throat> and I mean, midday is a classic time when you, uh, when you do, when the body energy does go down. You're supposed to have a rest after lunch, as you know, I'm... A, an aficionado of the siesta. <laughs> I've no, uh, I've no model problems with that. So um, people are different. They have different metabolisms, don't they? People are good risers, and some people are poor risers. People like to stay awake at night. I mean, um, I know one person. He, he, um, his rhythm is he works till one, one o'clock in the morning. Uh, so when he comes here, it's like it's a hell realm. <laughs> so I have to adjust the uh, I have to adjust things for him because it's just it's silly really because he spends most of his time falling asleep because because <laughs> that's when he's awake he's he's awake when we're asleep and asleep when we're awake so so um, yeah everybody has these different rhythms but the important thing is um, to know the difference between that which is natural to us and that which we're laying on top through bad habit. So the bad habit would be that when we feel tired, we simply go to sleep. You know, we don't, we don't question it, that's all. And as, we, as you know, we often go to sleep or um, get dozy, often when we're fed up with things. You know, or a bit depressed or <laughs> you just, I'll have a sleep now. And it's a, a lovely form of self-annihilation. And as you know, there's no suffering in oblivion. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the lovely thing about oblivion. It's like it's, there's nothing there. There's nobody there. There's no suffering, anything. It's just that we insist on waking up. So then, you see, there's this habit. Now, remember, these habits are dispositions. They are wells of potential energy. So we don't tend to think of um, dullness and leth lethargy as energy. We tend to think of them as, as a sort of a negative thing, a loss of energy, but it's not. If you look at them closely, they're, they're dragging you down into a black hole. 
which is not the same as tiredness. Tiredness is a clean energy. And when you wake up from it, you do, you do feel refreshed. But it's often the case that when you oversleep or when you're, when you're sleeping to escape something, you sometimes wake up worse than, you, than when you first went into sleep. So it's really uh, distinguishing those two on a retreat, knowing the distinction. It's not always easy. I mean, as you know, the usual thing I say is the, f the first three days um, there's a sort of natural tiredness comes because of the imbalance in most people's sleep. They're either oversleeping like that or they're undersleeping or, or they're not sleeping well or something, you know. That's normally ironed out. And I do see it on people's faces. I mean, it's one of the things that you see after three days. The face changes dramatically. Partly because, I think, of the sleep business, but also because just for a moment they've dropped <laughs> the cares and woes of life. <laughs> you know, I can forget about it, finally, just for, just for, just for a day. It is remarkable. And, it, and what, uh, what you see is the, is the modern stress, you see. I remember when I used to uh, go and visit up to the uplands of Sri Lanka, where they were living really the old agricultural life. They lived with the seasons. Um, they lived very, very close to the earth. It was just a hut. They had a bit of, they had a, maybe a, a small bit of furniture they, they bashed up together. Um, and the land up there is plentiful up on the highlands. I mean, it's just so lush. And the rainfall is twice a year. The monsoon comes twice. And uh, there isn't that, existential fear you know like you get when there's an economic crisis I mean as, they're as far as they're concerned they're still going to get curry it's not a problem it's just there and you see you see a very different sort of uh, atmosphere about them obviously much more relaxed much more at peace much more um, at ease you see now that's one of the blessings isn't it that we give with meta it's the um, to live in ease, you see, not to have this constant worry and stuff that the modern society really pushes on top of us. As a monk, I, when going out to the Easter course, I escaped all this. So I, I know what it's like when you have, when you know you're going to get lunch, and you have you have only a few clothes, and you know that's enough, and they'll last for years, and you have a roof over your head, and it's always warm. You never, you never gets that cold that you can't put a jumper on and feel warm. So this little escapade here, Satipan, has been a bit of an awakener. Because <laughs> here all, I've been, I've been assailed with constant <laughs> worries and wonderful. A real awakener. I was living in a false nirvana, that's, that's what it was. <laughs> and I must say this, the laying of this uh, car park and the placing of that statue, that's it. It's taken two years to get to a point where there is really nothing more to be done. I mean, there are always one or two things, but all the big stuff's gone, and that's it, really. The only thing is hopefully in time we can um, uh, place some small buildings or something for um, uh, people in, in wheelchairs, wheelchair access, which we haven't got, you know, and a proper um, toilet handicap for disabled people. So yes, that's that then. So that's the only thing with um, your rhythm. So it's natural to feel tired at certain times of the day and just to know that that's physical and not 
a mental, uh, an unwholesome mental disposition as well. Mm. And finally, of course, you've got to take that into daily life. And you can't make the effort here and then in daily life you just go berserk and sleep all the time. It's just like the practice has to go into your daily life. So that um, you're always uh, gently lifting, <coughs> lifting your energy. And energy is like, just like anything else. The more you exercise it, the more you have of it. You know, it's not, not as though you've only got so much energy and that's the end of it. I'm sure there's a, there's a limit, uh, physically anyway. Can't, can't be running up Everest but <laughs> but I think we've got much more energy than we think we have so, yeah, or uh, potential for more energy than we think we have you know. does any questions arise from that any clarifications yeah you, you describe um, Scott and Torpor as an, as an energy mm. that you look at and investigate mm. but I find that if I try and do that I get wrapped up in it and fall asleep. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, um, when uh, Sloth and Torpor, yeah. they're a sort of early translation, and uh, it tends to put a sort of moral no-no on it. Uh, it's sort of a moral, you know. So the, I tend to prefer dullness and lethargy and let people off a bit. You might feel guilty and shameful, which you ought to, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the truth of it. But modern, the modern person doesn't like that. Yes, uh, there are various things you can do, of course, um, which is to put yourself in a position where uh, it's difficult to fall asleep. Um, and it depends on the strength of the, of, the, um, of the dullness and lethargy. So one can open one's eyes and still feel it, you see, you're feeling the, the sensations. That's what you're doing. So if it's a dullness in the mind, your attention is, is in this area, you see, just feeling the dullness. And you can stand up and you can walk. And you'd be surprised. When you keep making that effort to be aware of these feelings, which are neutral feelings, they're not, they're not painful, they're, you know, they're, they're quite restful actually, uh, and you become it's like the energy draws back into the watching into the, the knowing and you become bright absolutely bright it's like walking into a cloud see you can be and you, it's like it's like that it's like being in a fog and you're awake you see but you're there with these feelings and remember you're not trying to get rid of them you're not trying to uh, do anything to them just like all these forms of energy, you're just allowing it to dissipate. See? And as, as it dissipates, you're losing a bit of the energy from that disposition, sankhara, from that particular habit. So that's why you've got to take it into daily life, because if you don't, you, keep, you, you go back, you, you reinforce the old habit. So every time you come to meditation retreat, you keep having to suffer the same things. There's a lot of it. <laughs> I. Eh? We're not going to run out. Well, not for a while. <laughs> I think it is actually. That's one of the things you don't like people to do in a meditation. All is yawn. Gets you going. 
physically it's even it's, it's even easier because you can you can take the mind up and down the body and discover what parts of the body actually don't feel it like you, you don't feel generally you don't feel lethargy in your toes although you can if you stretch your toes you get that feeling of tiredness in them well, at least I do anyway <laughs> maybe I've just got very sensitive toes um, so yes you can work with those in, in the same way and you can just be aware of it you can just feel it you see you can just feel it you can sometimes turn your inquiry or your interest into the process or go deeper and find out what are the constituent feelings of it the softness, hardness, softness, the gentleness. You know, you like you can you can go beyond the definition of um, dullness and lethargy, and actually find out what are the sensations that make up this concept. Things like that. See, awaken your um, interest in it. But sometimes it's just good enough to sit with it, you just walk with it. You know, like I say, you take the big fat dog for a walk. Come on, boy. Just drag it round, drag it round the paddock. <laughs> just keep moving the foot. Yeah, there was a time. There was a time. Those those uh, things used to. I remember distinctly. It used to last ten days with me at one point. I was on a long retreat, and every, when it hit me, I knew it'd be around for ten days, and I'd just be in this miasma for ten days, and then it would slowly lift. So it, it comes and goes anyway. But over, over time, <coughs> if you're working with it as a constant effort in your daily life, you see, don't be brutal. You're not, you're not sort of fighting it. You just, you just know you're tired and you ask yourself, no, I'm really tired. So you get up, walk around a bit, stretch, you know. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the question about the practice. We can move to uh, one about the fetters here. So, as I understand it, the fetters are the bindweed that generates the hindrances. These are always coming up in meditation and life. We can combat them inverted commas with mindfulness, but can we get all the bindweed out, or do we always have to be vigilant? I'm thinking of the delusion of a permanent self and the things that accompany this. As above, might cultivating positive mental states help? And if so, uh, which and or, and in what ways? Sorry it's so long. <laughs> so I, I like long questions. Uh, well, the first thing is to be clear in our mind what these fetters are and um, what their categorization is. So the Buddha categorizes the human experience in various ways to uh, give us different angles. Um, two, of the, two of the ways that uh, you can look at this psychophysical organism, the human being, is either by the kandas, these five heaps, the body, uh, perceptions, feelings, conditions, our habits and all that, and consciousness. But then he also says you can look at a human being by way of the senses. So there are six consciousnesses, six ways of knowing the world, the five physical ones and, and the mind itself, you see. So here 
he first of all I want you to um, uh, point out that, that uh, the, there's also what's known as the Anusaya now the, the Anusaya uh, come very close to I think anyway the western idea of something subconscious something that we're not fully aware of and um, it's one of these lists I haven't learned uh, they're known as here it's translated as the proclivities which is a very not a very uh, regular word is it inclinations or tendencies yeah now they won't surprise you uh, sensuous greed uh, grudge I don't know about grudge normally hatred yeah speculative opinion DT in other words I'm right everybody else is wrong uh, skeptical doubt uh, conceit um, craving for continued existence, okay, always wanting to become, and ignorance, which sort of covers it all, really. Now, although this actually is enumerated, um, I've read that the, the Buddha used it very generally, the word anusaya, to suggest that there were these potential conditionings within the system, and that they related in some way to actual behaviour, to the way you think and speak uh, and act. Yeah? And um, when they do that, then you can actually see them. So that's when he categorizes them in terms of our meditation practice into the five hindrances. Okay? So now we know when, when something unwholesome comes up, we should be able to fit it into one of these five. Uh, one of these five. And then when we're doing that, we're doing the fourth um, establishment of mindfulness which is to see what we're experiencing by way of the Buddha's Dharma Dhamma Dhamma Nupasati right? to really look into the Buddha's Dharma and to see what we're experiencing from his point of view this is the point you see um, which is difficult for us Westerners who have uh, a different psychology and a different philosophy what we tend to do is place that upon the Buddha's teaching and um, reinterpret the Buddha's teaching by way of our understanding, see? Um, and I think that's some of the problems that uh, people come across. One of the early mistakes, I mean, it was the early Christians who came upon Buddhism uh, and just presumed because of the descriptions of nirvana, that it was extinction. It was often translated just annihilation, even though the Buddha goes out of his way a hundred times <laughs> to say he doesn't teach annihilation. He only teaches the annihilation of greed, hatred and delusion. So you get things like that, you see. So it's good sometimes to contemplate the teachings of the Buddha because it makes us see our situation in a different way. And I would say that um, uh, it's by doing that that you get the fullness of the practice. See? I mean, one, one example might be the quality of anicca, impermanence. So normally, I think we would think it's the same stuff which just changes. Um, you know, like you might see a tree, the leaf of a tree, you know, but it's always the same stuff that produces leaves. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> so you get the idea that impermanence is like a cloud. 
It's the same thing, but it's changing. But actually, it's more like uh, the way leaves are on a tree. It's a completely new leaf. The leaf grows, drops off, and then you get a completely new leaf. And that's how the Buddha saw time. It collapses momentarily, you see. And uh, mentally speaking, those collapses aren't into annihilation, but into this rather funny word, bhavanga, which means life continuation. We would just call it unconsciousness. But it's a potential. And then you rise out of that. And the longest piece of that bhavanga that we have is, of course, when we fall asleep. Well, those are happening minutely throughout the day. They're not, they're not just when we're asleep, you see. Right? It's just collapsing. So those are, those are the sorts of things that uh, we from the West might impose upon the Buddhist without even knowing it. We just, we just presume we know uh, when in fact we haven't really understood what he was talking about. <clears throat> so now these uh, five uh, Nivarana, as they're called, the, the five hindrances, that those, those come specifically within the practice of Vipassana because he, he tries to encapsulate in those four uh, in those five, all the various unwholesome mental states that you might come across. That's all he's done. And the reason why he's categorized them like that is because each of them demands a different approach, a different way of uh, dealing with them. See? So obviously if you're dealing with um, a compulsive desire, like it's something that's really grabbed your imagination, and it's, uh, and it's really... Uh, taking most of your meditation, uh, you know, into this dream world. You see, so you have to come off, and there you know it's an indulgence, as opposed to something which you don't like. So, for instance, if some anxiety comes up, there may there may be anxious uh, uh, thinking about it. But when you come into the body, you don't want to stay there. So normally, what we do then is, of course, rush off somewhere where we can enjoy something. So often you find that when you're involved in a pleasant daydream and you keep coming off it, it's actually a bit of icing on top of this dung <laughs> which wants to come up, you see. And then that's the way we often escape from our problems, by, by just indulging in something pleasurable. It's understandable, isn't it? I do it myself. <laughs> so I escape. <laughs> But it's just, it's just knowing that these various, various categories have different ways of dealing with, with, um, with them. So we've just talked about you know, uh, dullness and lethargy. So that's the hindrances as such. Now the fetters, so in terms of the question you see, the bindweed, um, that which binds... Um, that's another, yeah, the fetters are another category, only this time he's talking about these big leaps in um, spiritual understanding that are real turnarounds in the way that we relate to the world. So, in the, in the first um, stage, what's known as Sotapanna, the stream enterer, um, the insight there is such that the person glimpses uh, the fact that this personality is not a self, it's not a, it's not a me or a mind, it's not substantial. 
Um, the other, th the other insight is that all the religious practices, uh, which are not to do with insight, but more to do with raising devotion, um, all the little rituals that we do, like the bowing and the and the taking the refuges and, and, and stuff like that, are all supports, but in themselves don't produce any awakening. You see, now if you go back to Hindu, t to the times of the Buddha, it was presumed that certain things would bring moksha, you know, would release you from karma. And I still think um, probably there are some forms of uh, Hinduism that uh, still believe that, like standing in the Ganges gets rid of all your karma, bad karma, you know. Get rid of you too. If you stand out. <laughs> and uh, and a lot of the rituals that we see in other religions, you see, which people from a Buddhist point of view might mistakenly think that this actually brings liberation. But uh, you then don't want to go to the opposite side and think that all ritual is useless and a waste of time, because the whole point of of ritual is to prepare oneself, is to get the right frame of mind, the right attitude, the right, the right atmosphere within oneself. You see, so it's not a, it's not a. Um, the Buddha is not saying don't have any ritual. He's just saying don't believe that that's enough to get you liberated. Um, And the third one, that the, the third one, actually it's number two. So the first one is personality belief, that this body, that this um, personality is a real self. So there's a, a glimpse of that. There's a real understanding of that. Um, and then the, the second one is uh, the, the ending of sceptical doubt. So that person doesn't have that hindrance come up in terms of the Buddha's teaching. So it doesn't mean to say that they might not doubt in ordinary daily life, like whether they should take this job or not. It's not that. But there's no sceptical doubt as to the Buddha's teaching because they themselves have glimpsed Nibbana. That's the point. Hmm? And the Buddha talks about it like a flash of lightning. And it's interesting because when some people have this experience, it's like nothing. They don't even know they've had it. It's, it's like it's um, of little con virtually no consequence to them. They don't even know it sometimes. Even though the teacher tells them, they say, well, I don't think, it, I don't think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> For others, it's a, it's a sort of huge, um, amazing thing that's happened to them. And the way I personally uh, make sense of that is because, of course, in past lives, if you have attained that, then when you come back to this life, you're simply regaining the position where you were. It's like, for instance, going through the first, uh, the first change in our, uh, the first big change in our relationship to the world at the age of seven. It just happens naturally, doesn't it? For most, anyway. Very few people know they're going through that process of, um, of a seven-year-old. You know there are two major things that happen there. The first one is that you you take on guilt. You, you, you come across the law of karma at the age of seven. That when you do something harmful, harm, harm comes to you. Before that, uh, a child might not be clear about it. But from the age of seven on, it becomes more and more clear. But the other thing that happens to us around the age of seven, of course, is that 
our imaginings uh, cannot be real to us anymore. You know, Father Christmas cannot come down the chimney anymore. You know, for a three-year-old, that's not a problem. It's just, it's just, it's presumed, you see. But after seven, I'm afraid we lose the magic. I was once uh, with um, a mother and a child. She was about three. And um, it was Christmas, wasn't it? Yeah, around about Christmas. And uh, unfortunately, I thought, well, uh, the, the, they were talking about Christmas and the mother kept saying, but you know, it's not real. See, and I could see the girl was slightly confused by this. And I kept thinking, no, don't kill it. <laughs> you know, just, she's only three for God's sake. You know, let her believe in Christmas. You know? yeah, well. It's like, uh, it was like she was trying to be, trying to, trying to, trying to make the child what, what it can't be at the age of three, you know. Never mind. <coughs> so those are the fetters that disappear. Now, fetters, um, that's a nice word, uh, bindweed. You know, they, they sort of hold you there. You can't, and you don't even know it, of course, because of the delusion. So these three, uh, you can see they don't quite equate to the, to the five hindrances or to the Anusaya. They, they, sort of, um, they sort of double up a bit. Um, but it's said that when a person does reach this, their morality is also enhanced, you see. Their virtue is enhanced. And it's said that if such a person cannot commit a crime or do something so heinous, that would put them into a hell state. Okay. It wouldn't be possible for them to do that. All these various realms, remember, are to be experienced, can be experienced as a human being. Buddhist cosmology simply it's a later thing although the Buddha talks about it the way it's all worked out with all these different heavens and, and all that this is a later sort of um, intellectualization of it but they're basically um, cosmologizing states that you can experience right here and now so when you're really depressed or when you're in a panic you're in a hell state you know when you feel very dull, uh, when you've had a few drinks, say no. Uh, you're in animal state, you've lost. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you're in a very angry state, you're in the angry gods. When you're very happy, you're in heaven. You're in one of the delightful heavens. When, when, when you achieve one of these beautiful states in meditation, an absorption state maybe, then you're, you're, in, uh, you're in one of the higher realms. You see what I mean? It's, they're all... So now the second one, you see, when you reach the second stage, which is the stage of once return, it's presumed you have to come back into this form again to let go of your desire for sensual pleasure. So this is the realm of sensual pleasure. And uh, even though you've attenuated greed for sensual pleasure and aversion, uh, there's still something to be done. So those are the two things that are attenuated. They're just lessened. They're not so strong. So only in the third one, the non-returner, where this searching for happiness in sensual pleasure and aversion and all that disappear. 
And what that, what all that saying is that such a person is no longer attracted to this particular form, doesn't attract them anymore. Just as, uh, as you know, as children, as we grow out of certain toys, you know, we're not attracted to rattles anymore. I've moved on, usually. I know some people still have their teddy bears, but <laughs> uh, we can forgive that. And then finally, when you finally reach Arahat and the self disappears, that um, understanding of a self, um, then you get um, the craving for these two rather finer states which is caused by the jhana. So the jhana, the ordinary rupa jhana and the arupa jhana. So these are technical terms but they're basically blissful states within us. And the whole point about the jhanas is that they are created by the mind itself through uh, mantra, through watching the breath, through loving kindness and therefore you don't need anything out there to feel absolutely blissed out. And that's why when you get to that stage you can live under a tree. What the hell does it matter? <laughs> you know, you don't need, you don't need um, uh, retail therapy anymore. You can, <laughs> you just sit under a tree and get blissed out. And you wake up and go for a bit of lunch, find yourself a park bench and off you go again. So, it's just <laughs> so that's, uh, even those areas are now let go of as true happiness. This is the point. The delusion that these are going to bring to happiness disappears. And um, with that, with the self goes conceit. Now, conceit in um, in Buddhist, the, the word used mana uh, has a root form, which means to measure. So the the self is always measuring itself against other people. It's either getting envious or feeling superior, um, and that's the conceit. It can be a, a, an inferiority conceit. I'm worse than everybody else. Uh, superiority. And then a rather subtle one where I'm equal. So by saying you're equal to somebody, you're basically forming a group which is either inferior or superior to anybody else's group. <laughs> it's just a subtle... It's like when you say we're Buddhists. You know, as though that's, that's, that's better than being anything else. So that's conceit. That goes because there's no self that is judging anymore or measuring. Um, restlessness goes. Now this has always interested me. Um, I think what's really meant here, actually, is that all the, all the old problems are there uh, that are within our personality and that through the practice and over a period of time they just become less and less and less until they're just this little restlessness. They're not, they're not disturbing so much. They're not so cloying. Uh, they're not so demanding. They've just lost energy. See, that's, that's my understanding of it. Technically, it's just feeling restless. You know, you fidgety or whatever. But uh, when you look into your own restlessness, you'll always find there's something making you restless. You see? So even that goes now because the heart's completely purified. You know, there's no, for want of a better word, there's no neuroses. There's no, there's nothing in there of, of, which has a negative effect on us. So now the heart is now full of uh, this more these more positive qualities. Uh, 
mainly are um, the four illimitables, love, compassion, joy, peace. We'll come to that. And then finally, of course, ignorance goes. So now a person is wise. Right? W- wise meaning that um, they know about how they've created all this suffering for themselves. They know themselves to be liberated from it. And they know that they cannot fall back into that suffering. That's what this ignorance is. It's not, it's not, it's not as though when you become wise you know all about quantum physics. Unfortunately, they do... They do put things like that on the poor Buddha, but <laughs> I'm sure he didn't. <laughs> but he definitely knew he was liberated, and he definitely knew how he had be- how he had liberated himself, and he definitely knew how he got into the mess. And of course, that's what he then went on to teach. Yeah? So uh, that I hope covers a bit of that. I don't know if, if there's any questions arising from that. So it's good to read these long questions again, actually. I shall just read. <laughs> As I understand it, the fetters are the bindweed that generate the hindrances. Um, I'm not so sure they generate the hindrances. I mean, uh, our, one of them does, ignorance. But it's like a different categorization. Um, the hindrances are the expressions of the bindweed. Something like that. Yeah, why not? I'll let that pass. Uh, these are always coming up in meditation in life and we can combat them with mindfulness that means in a sense that they don't overtake us uh, but can we get rid of all this bindweed well the answer is yes you see uh, but unfortunately as the question goes on do we always have to be vigilant absolutely see so his final words apamado sampadeta you know struggle on strive on apamado diligently vigilantly it's often translated as vigilant so you bat an eye and you've fallen back. It's like, it's like you've got to keep on the ball. But remember, it's, uh, the attitude should be one of uh, being relaxed with that process. If any, if any force comes into it, if any uh, struggle in that wrong sense comes into it, then uh, actually you're making it worse. We're making it worse for ourselves. And it's, a, it's just a good habit to keep relaxing into the present moment as often as you can, as often as it comes to mind. Just to stop, relax the body, relax the shoulders, just stop. And then, then you rise out of that into your next action. And that keeps uh, an ease about life. Yeah. Spiritually speaking, you're not trying to attain any of this. You're not trying to attain these four paths and fruits. You're not trying to attain Nibbana. What you're trying to attain is moment-to-moment mindfulness. Because once that's attained, the path manifests. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything. And that's the, um, the genius, you might say, of the Buddha's teaching. He doesn't, he doesn't land us with goals in the future. So that everything we're doing now is some sort of nibbanic bliss in, in, you know, in, in so many hundreds of thousands of years. He says, no, he says, just, just be aware now and you'll begin to taste it. Just be aware now and those hindrances that are stopping us moving forward will begin to lessen. So the whole accent is upon now, you see. And that makes it easy for us, doesn't it? 
know, it's like you don't have to worry about the future. The, you know, it'll take care of itself, you know. Um, I want to do the next one now, which is, uh, um, which is about the self, actually. <coughs> so if the last question was long, wait for this one. Uh, Vanti, I just wanted to say one more thing about rebirth. So we had a discussion on rebirth. Um, if rebirth is fueled by thirst or desire to become, then it follows that if the human race were all to simultaneously realize the absolute truth of things <laughs> and attain arahatship, then from that moment no more human beings could be born. Uh, I make this point not to be ridiculous, but because rebirth explained in this way seems to be saying that life and existence is the problem. Now for me, life manifesting itself in all its, in all its wonderments is truly beautiful. And that the problems, the problem is not existence, but our wrong relationship with existence. I think to regard rebirth, if it happens, as something to be hopefully one day, as something to hopefully one day be done away with, misses the very opportunity, the very point of our existence, which with the right view takes us into the realm of great love. Now, this rebirth is a big problem for, for Western music. But um, uh, you might have come across a teacher called Buddhadasa, Ajahn Buddhadasa. He's written quite a few books. He had a monastery, I say had because he died, he's died now. He had a monastery in the south of Thailand called Swanmuk. And he is probably the only writer I've met who actually has hit the nail on the head and it's really very much against the normal teaching of Theravada or, or the, the way that Theravada normally talks about rebirth and all that. So the normal thing is that um, we keep being reborn as human beings or as other beings and when we become liberated that's it like it's what happens <laughs> and nothing nothing is spoken of it nothing is is talked of it Mahayana tried to correct that by having the Buddha constantly be re, uh, appear um, out of compassion for all beings in his uh, in his bliss body Right? basically as an angel inverted commas as his bliss body and that within the bliss body there's the dharmakaya which is this um, Buddha within the Buddha nature call it what you wish you see so there's a whole philosophy and a whole understanding about that which is um, highly elaborated in the Mahayana system now if we take the Theravada according to Buddha Dasa the, uh, the big mistake came very early on talking about rebirth as if it was one person being reborn maybe as a different personality but that basically that was the process that, would, that came to an end. When he studied the scriptures in, real, in, in his own depth to his own understanding and I think this is what comes across once you uh, begin to... Uh, 
see where the Buddha is coming from. Um, this whole process of rebirth is the rebirthing of self. So this dependent origination, for instance, is often talked of as three lives. So the first, your past life, is your ignorance, your delusion, and all your dispositions. You're born into this life with these dispositions and fundamental delusion, and your culture then makes you, uh, helps you to produce a personality, a character, which has as, it, as its base these particular conditionings. And depending on the situation, certain conditionings will come to the fore and others won't. So if, for instance, you have a lot of fear within these conditionings at birth, but you're born into a situation which is very supportive, then it's obviously going to be helpful. If you're born in a war zone, you're not going to do so well. So, and in this life, all the middle section happens, all the business of the desire, the becoming, etc. And then after this uh, becoming, there's this rebirth in another realm of sickness, old age and death, birth, sickness, old age and death. In other words, that's your future life. So that's how it's taught, shall we say, traditionally. Now, what um, Buddhadas has pointed out, which is already there, and as, but he's, he, really, he really makes it very, very clear, that this wheel of dependent origination is actually about presenting moments. It's actually happening now. So even now, there is this basis of delusion within us. And there are these dispositions. Every moment we enter comes with that little bit of baggage and we react uh, from delusion this is not wise from, not from a wisdom point of view. We, uh, we react to it in a deluded way and before we know it we're stuck in some desire some aversion and we rebirth the self and that's at the point of the upadana the grasping and then when that process is over it's as though there's a drop there's a finish and the potential lies there, right? And then you walk into the next moment and another self is created. See? So it's not as though you have a self which is blocked and, and that's it, it's final. The self is constantly being reborn. And it's not always happening. It's obviously not happening when you sleep. And it's not happening when we're, when we're doing something from a wisdom base. So if we look at the Buddha... Once he'd become fully liberated, from then on, all his actions are coming, uh, are moving along a similar psychology. An idea comes, you know, I'll go and teach these people my old companion. And then he reinforces the idea. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a, an intention. He's empowered it. And he's walked a couple of hundred, I think it's about 100 miles or so. Can you remember how much it was? It's a long way. <laughs> it's a long way. From at least a day. <laughs> so from where he was, he was liberated to go and find these companions right up in uh, Benares, Varanasi, uh, was an act of will. But that whole process and going there and teaching did not produce another self. So that, that idea of a self has gone. Now, does that mean that um, 
the Buddha doesn't have a sense of himself as it were like it's a sort of schizophrenia or, a, or an uncentered personality like I mean what's happening if he doesn't have a self you see well uh, the thing is that um, it depends how you want to exp uh, exp express this the way I personally express it is that once this satipanya this intuitive intelligence has discovered its own true nature it forms a very different relationship to this body-mind complex which is uh, this, this, this um, personality, this character, this, this body right? it doesn't see it as me it's simply a vehicle like you might get in your car so if you get in your car and then say this is me they, they probably take you away slowly yes come on dear see but you don't say that you say I'm in I'm in you might say it's my car you have a sort of a relationship to it but you don't say it's me so it's the same with this satipanya this Buddha within us it no longer says this is me it's coming from some other place see and um, it's driven by um, similar on, on, on a wholesome level it's driven by similar attitudes of love, compassion, joy but uh, this time it's not being corrupted it doesn't have the kink of a self in it in other words what's in it for me See? coming from a pure heart a pure wisdom base so now that is I think a more acceptable way of understanding rebirth and I think it's a way that um, allows us to use the concept of rebirth very much as part of our spiritual practice you see so here I am being reborn as a greedy person again you see what I mean it's like <laughs> here I go again it's me again hello and it's sort of recognizing that I say you greedy person you see uh, not damning of course not judging <laughs> but uh, simply no longer enjoying it no longer uh, indulging in that yeah so now what happens when we die so this is this is the next big thing you see what happens then then when we die well in terms of spiritual practice it's irrelevant because all we have is this present moment you're either practicing or you're not and when you die well if, you, if you're not anymore fine there's no suffering there you won't be bothered at all if you disappear completely uh, on the other hand if you reappear <laughs> then it might <laughs> If you, if you actually reappear then of course there's a problem again so you're, you're stuck with this with this being so here I am again it's like when you wake up in the morning isn't it you know, here I am again what am I doing you know like you wake up <laughs> where, where, where have I been so a sudden and I, eh? I just read a quote about that in, in the final chapter on the questions mm -hmm. do you remember the quote it's along the lines of if, if there is no such thing as rebirth but you've lived an honourable life well that's all very good um, and, and you've lived a life of happiness and peace for yourself and you've contributed something positive if there is such a thing as rebirth and you've lived according then, then your rebirth will be positive that's right so it's like a win-win situation yes, yes I know the Buddha points that out because obviously in his day too there were annihilationists you know the people who, 
who thought that when you died that was it. There were some people who had a more convoluted system where you went through all these different realms and then disappeared. Uh, but uh, there were definitely annihilationists in his day. Um, and yes, he, he gives this win-win situation where, you know, if you live a virtuous life, at least you get these benefits and then fine, you disappear. But, and if you live a virtuous life and, find, and wake up somewhere else, then you've got at least the benefits of that, of your virtuous life, you see. Um, the Buddha talks about the chitta body, the body of the mind, the mental body, um, which he says through meditative practices you can exit from the body like a sword from the scabbard. Take it out. And um, I've been, I know people who have, who've had this subtle body leave the physical body and go for a walk and come back. And it still has the same unfortunate qualities as the physical body. You still, it still arises and passes away. But it's just of this finer material. And um, that would be, uh, in the Mahayana system, as I understand it, that's your body of bliss when it becomes enlightened. That's your Sambhogakaya. This is, this is known as your Nirmanakaya, which is your apparition body or something. Your creative, the body that's created. Now in all this, there's the Dharmakaya or the Buddha within, you see. And of course, that's of a different nature. And people experience that too, outside their bodies. Uh, those people who've had, um, who've had near-death experiences, where this consciousness has exited from this whole system, and yet is obviously very conscious. So, uh, in terms of rebirth, it's never, it's never caused me any problems. You know, the idea that one is one goes on in some way but it's necessary to also understand that um, that belief is not necessary See? often when um, people come to Buddhism um, if they've been brought up in one of the religions the, the monotheistic religions Christianity or Judaism or whatnot, um, it's like there's a misunderstanding that they have to believe some. They have to believe what the Buddha says, or else it's not going to work. It's like you know, you believe that Jesus died to save us all, and you have to believe that, or else you, you don't get your comeuppance. You know, you don't get your <laughs> you don't get your grace. You see, you have to believe that. But of course, Buddhism's come very different from that. It, it is very much a a hypothesis. It's a theory uh, that the Buddha puts to us and says, "Well, this is true for me. You'll have to find out for yourself whether it's true for you." You know what I mean? It's a, an investigation. And that process of investigation is the process of liberation. Okay. So, I can uh, take out the salient points of this uh, question. Um, yeah, so, what's, so then what happens? I mean, uh, you know, if, if all human beings disappeared, well, that, that'd be it. The earth would be liberated <laughs> <laughs> from, from very deluded beings. That's for sure. Probably feel very Mother Earth and feel joyous. She'd jump up and down with joy. Yippee! Well, she's got rid of a few uh, species every so often. She just shakes them off, doesn't she? And then, then sort of reinvigorates herself and starts again. 
Wonderful. Um, now, this question about all, all beings is just that I know it's, um, it's a um, hypothetical question, but it reminds me of a lovely question that was asked <coughs> by, by, um, by a woman of Nyanaponika, who was this uh, German monk. He, he's the one who started the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy. And uh, she said to him, in a similar vein, supposing everybody became monks and nuns. See? You know, like, that would be the end of the human race, you see. And he said, my dear, it won't happen. <laughs> it just won't happen. So, <laughs> so, even though I know this is a hypothetical question, if all human beings became, uh, you know, liberated all at once, it just won't happen. Uh, but the question goes on and says, life manifesting itself is all its wonderments. Now, um, the Buddha is definitely aware of beauty, even in, a, even in the very simple way of the way he asked his uh, order, uh, the monks and, and nuns to robe. Remember in the early days, they were happy with just taking bits of cloth off the charnel grounds where they put dead bodies in shrouds and cut it into pieces, sewed it together, anything would do. But when he saw a group of his monks dressed like this, uh, you know, he, he didn't like it at all when he saw it as a way of manifesting his teaching. And uh, that's when he asked them to cut it into various pieces and sew it in such a way that it looked like paddy fields. That's what they looked like. Eh? And uh, to, to, to dye it, to <coughs> boil it with this, this nut called an arica nut, which gives it a sort of light brown colour. And if you read the, the final disc, uh, the discourse on, you know, which leads to his passing, which leads to his parinibbana, uh, he's walking along with Ananda, his companion, his uh, assistant, and he says, well, this lovely food, you know, let's go and eat this love in, in, in a lovely shrine. He doesn't say, you know, let's just sit down here in this dunk heap and, and eat this stuff. You know, he actually seeks out what is beautiful. And um, if you... Um, if you think about it from, um, I think it's Plato, isn't it? Plato said, I think it's very true, isn't it? That with truth, with truth there arises uh, virtue. And with virtue, beauty. So now, the truth is the intellect. It's, it's understanding. Virtue is your will. You, how you manifest your understanding in daily life. And beauty is the heart. It's art. It's uh, it's the way that you manifest through manifest your feeling. Your your uh, this this question uses the word love. I mean, that's what love is, isn't it? Yeah. So the Buddha doesn't deny that. He doesn't deny that's what life is. That's what I that's what I definitely understand by it. And um, I shall sort of end with a little story. Uh, I think I've answered the question. Yeah. End with a little story about this. Uh, young girl who turned up at the monastery at uh, Kandaboda, which was, you know, where I st it's my monastery in, uh, in Sri Lanka. And uh, her father said that every evening she would come and tell him that she was going to a particular heavenly realm because she was writing the biography of the Buddha. So she was only a little girl, nine or ten or something, so he 
you know, he sort of humoured her and said, oh, yeah, very good, you know. <laughs> so she got to bed, you see. Anyway, one day it would seem, you can only believe what people tell you, uh, she got fed up with her dad and rose up in front of him and disappeared. So he rushed her off to this monastery, Kandaboda, uh, with this big question, he said, and she came along. And um, her answers are on a tape, they're in, Sri Lanka, they're in Singhalese, so I don't understand it, but the gist of it was that she, had, she was an arahat, and she didn't bow to monks, and she didn't, because she was, she was completely liberated. And she had come back to help her grandfather, this particular person. And when she went up to this particular heavenly realm, uh, all the Buddhas, uh, the Buddha and all the disciples were there, and there were shrines where they came and gave talks. Now, it's a strange thing, isn't it? <laughs> you have to, I don't know whether you have to believe this or not. So many, about three or four years later, I went, I went back to Sri Lanka, and I asked about this girl, but unfortunately she'd, she'd disappeared. She'd now be, I suppose, 20, 20 odds. It would be, be interesting to try and seek her out and find out whether, it, whether she was dreaming or not. But um, uh, her father said she rose up in front of him and disappeared. No. no. Mind you, Jesus, you know, the, the ascension. So there are wonderful things in the world. So, unless there are questions arising, I trust that my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. <laughs>